is part three of my uh, talk on uh, Yukio Mishima and I'm using Mishima uh, as an example of in Japan what is called a Mai what I think is actually Freud's death drive and in biblical terms I think it is just a picture of what the law can do to us but the you know Paul talks about this body of death and he describes this agonistic struggle within the self. Mishima captures this best in his work, Sun and Steel. And he's describing this work, you know, Paul calls it the law of the mind and the, the body of flesh. Mishima's almost using this exact same language. He talks about the flesh and the intellect, or he talks about his body, the, the flesh, and over and against words. And so in this spirit, he begins a kind of intense physical regimen of bodybuilding uh, and sword fighting and militaristic training. And he says, as my body acquired muscle and uh, strength, there was gradually a, a born a tendency to the acceptance of pain and my interest in physical suffering deepened and I think this is the key passage here that as a you know if you think of Romans 7 there is this picture of deep suffering in Romans 7 that seems to be the an inescapable suffering that in fact kills us that there it makes suffering seem a necessity and the only possibility um, and of course what breaks into this uh, struggle is I think Christianity in its right understanding but tragically a perverse Christianity imagines the death of Christ and uh, the life of the Christian as if suffering is inherently redemptive and of course, Paul is portraying suffering as a futility. Uh, there is no such thing as redemptive suffering. Not even the suffering of Christ is suffering that is redemptive per se. Paul is picturing Christ subjecting himself to suffering, not uh, you know because the suffering is the necessity, but because the overcoming of the suffering uh, in uh, Christ's life, death, resurrection is what is being worked out. And so Romans 7, Romans 8 pictures two very different ideas of suffering. And I think Mishima then is a portrayal of this notion that is sometimes, you know, it's there in masochism that suffering is a necessity. But he, the genius of Mishima is that he articulates this for himself, he comes up with his own religion of uh, emperor worship that uh, he's going to justify the suffering. And it's very interesting. I think that Christianity for many people works like Mishima's emperor worship, that it gives them a kind of excuse towards sadism and masochism. That people will literally, I've been literally told, you know, that we do evil, that good may be may abound and usually they're talking about doing evil to other people um, as Freud describes it suffering itself is what matters in this condition and so it may be that you imagine you're suffering for destiny or circumstance or love 
But the masochist, the point is, seeks opportunities to suffer. Uh, and this is precisely what Mishima is doing. He's creating the sword and shield society, the little militaristic group that will uh, give him an excuse to die, so that he could encounter the opposition, that he could in some way grapple with the opponent. And it's the opponent, and of course the opponent is himself in some way. It's his own uh, ego or I. And it's this opponent that lurked in the empty space, he says, beyond the flash of the fist and the blow of the fencing, you know, fencing sword, gazing back at one that constituted the true essence of things. And so what he's seeking is this true essence, to, that it escaped his grasp. He's trying to literally flesh out in his muscle, in his bodybuilding program, uh, an encounter with his self. And so Doi puts it, you know, that the self is felt only as a form of resistance. <clears throat> the greater the tension within the self, the closer the reality of self is felt. And under this idea, the intensity of suffering brings about the ultimate encounter with the self. And the moment of complete self-discovery would be the moment of ultimate suffering, pain, and death. This is very, you know, this is, I think, embraced in Buddhism, in the Nirvana principle, and this is why Freud calls the death drive. He's actually, it's actually Freud's picturing the death drive fused with the pleasure principle, the Nirvana principle. But pain and suffering and the continuing consciousness is in some way proof of life. You know, you think of people cutting themselves or hurting themselves. Well, they're doing this in some way to uh, uh, evoke a sensibility of being alive. And so the way they do that is to hurt themselves. And in Mishima's picture, he's clearly, he says, on the road uh, that leads to death in Freud's phrase. A man can only be objectified by the supreme action, Mishima says, the moment of death. And so words is, are a mere intermediator. Uh, they, there is a kind of art of the novel but Mishima is imagining that he's turning to the supreme art, the supreme expression of beauty, the ultimate artistic expression, that he says lay in the depths of the imagination in, its, uh, in death. So it's not in the fetish of words, but it's in, he's describing the trick of turning the imagination which had tormented him, you know, back on itself, that he had struggled all his life with this sadomasochism. You know, if you find reading Confessions of a Mask unpleasant, well, that's the point, is that Mishima's living with this unpleasant, sadistic imagining, and he wants to rid himself of it. And so he changes his imagination uh, into a kind of weapon for, he, he describes his using it as a counterattack. Uh, his literary work, he says, is a kind of, is a stopgap, a means of successfully holding the encroachments of the imagination in check. Uh, and this is, is, is writing is torturous to read, but torturous to live. 
And so the true counterattack must take place, he says, in some field outside that of art. And so he prepares. He takes up sword, you know, swordsmanship. He's going to train his young guys that follow him uh, to literally uh, help him in committing seppuku, the Japanese traditional suicide. And in this means, he'll uh, slay the opponent, uh, which is himself. And so this facing down of the opponent was something he thinks he had been unprepared for. He says that his decadent youth was, if he had just been strong enough, he would have been able to fight like a warrior. And in the picture here, he, he pictures the idea of a warrior as being a part of a singular group uh, of, you know, joining, melding with a group that can face death squarely and undo the self. And in, in this way, he imagines that his tormenting imagination could have been dealt with. And so by replacing the imagination with duty, and this is his word, you know, think here of Paul's law that we submit ourselves. We imagine there's life in the law. Mishima imagines there's life to be found in duty. Think of Kant's picture of duty. I think we're dealing with first order death drive here that uh, Mishima says, no moment is so dazzling as when everyday imaginings concerning death and danger and world destruction are transformed into duty. And of course the idea of having something worth dying for and to prepare himself to face this moment and to concentrate upon death is what he's recounting in Sun and Steel. He says we need to keep death in mind from day to day to focus each moment upon inevitable death and to make sure one's worst forebodings coincided with one's dreams of glory. And so he's going to transfer the world of flesh that I had been, he says, long uh, doing into the world of spirit. What he means by this is that he would carry out in reality himself the fantasies that he had pictured uh, in his imagination. And in doing it, he thinks he can destroy his imagination. And throughout this, you know, the eroticism or sexuality has always been in question. This is, this is interesting on you know, Freud that he recognizes. Maybe it's captured in the Old Testament picture of idolatry that it's often portrayed under the metaphor of adultery and uh, a kind of fusion of the male or the male image as a kind of impossible image. There really is no eroticism. This is Lacan's phrase, there is no sexual relationship. And of course, the more the voice of the father intrudes within the self, the more that uh, eroticism is done away with or sexuality and Mishima describes this that uh, it had just faded completely from his life as he focused on his duty and this is why Freud calls it moral masochism it's a neurosis that demands complete 
morality, complete duty, and of course morality here needs to be put in quotes because Freud saw morality as the ultimate immorality, which may sound odd, but think of those who killed Christ. It wasn't the tax collectors and the sinners that killed Christ. It was the Pharisees, the religious leaders, the principalities and powers. And so the ultimate immorality, you know, think of the Nazis, think of genocide, think of, uh, you know, uh, the system itself and the imaginings that the system then holds out life in Paul uh, is the worst sort of evil. So that morality in this sense, or law in Paul, uh, in its ever-increasing demands, of course, what it's ultimately demanding is our destruction. And as Mishima is playing this out in his life, as, as, as he's strengthening his body, it's actually his superego that is being strengthened. And he's not, there's no sexual, you know, he had previously talked about a kind of autoeroticism, but um, now he's completely doing the bidding of the law, the superego, or what he calls duty. And his physical strength, as he's, you know, muscling up, is bringing about an ever-increasing silence. And so the art in Sun and Steel is almost completely lacking. Uh, He says, Death began from the time when I set about acquiring an existence other than that of words. So Sun and Steel, ironically, is his description of his increasing degrees of silence, but uh, maybe it's enough of a, you know, or it's certainly lacking in any kind of inherent interest. But what he's describing is the attempt to return to the omniscience that he felt as a child, the idea of, you know, the child being to manip- able to manipulate and control things. Or uh, Freud describes this uh, idea of the child's lack of self, in a sense, is also uh, the idea that, uh, in some way, you know, you step on a crack, you break your mother's back. That in some way the child imagines that it's the center of the world, that it's a completely egocentric being. And that's the kind of, you know, recognition in psychoanalysis that the the destruction of the ego and a complete narcissism are not far apart. Uh, in fact, they seem to be the same thing, that Uh, the idea is of returning to an original omniscience. I think this is what's there in Amai. The idea of a trying to meld with mother once again in which, I mean, this is the contradiction. The loss of self is the gaining of self. And I think so often this logic is confused with the sacrifice of Christianity that we imagine that we in some way are, you know, duty-bound and that in suffering is inherently redemptive. Uh, but for Freud, and I think for the Apostle Paul, this is simply guilt. It's the moral masochist. And not, Freud chant, turns, he, he originally calls it an unconscious guilt, but he's going to drop this terminology 
He says there's just this need for punishment. Uh, the moral masochist, uh, he doesn't sense the guilt. He just knows that he needs to be punished. And it's a result of the superego, if you will, or of the law, uh, that it takes hold of us. It gets a grip on us. He says that the superego becomes harsh, cruel, inexorable against the ego. And so it drives the masochist into an increasing inarticulateness. Uh, and as Freud interestingly describes it, a descending spiral of sin in which sin and punishment reaches its logical end. He says the masochist must do what is inexpedient. He must act against his own interests, must ruin the prospects which open out to him in the real world and must perhaps destroy his own real existence. So this is, I think, Mishima is giving us the logic of the moral masochist. The logic, the way he's going to justify it is through a revised or renewed emperor system. The emperor, of course, and he's thinking here of Hirohito, after the war had denied his divinity. And Mishima thinks this is the great tragedy of Japan, that an entire generation had given their lives for this emperor who denies the very thing for which they had died. And so Mishima, in picturing the emperor system, he's not necessarily thinking of Hirohito, but he's thinking of the emperor system as a whole, and that there needs to be a restoration of this primal religion that is constituting Japanese. Now, there, there's a great deal of, you know, as you read Sun and Steel, he seems to be doing all this, though, even, even in his own conscious understanding with the idea that he's setting this outward picture of a turn to militarism and the emperor as a kind of outward justification for his inward ending of the struggle that he feels within himself. So uh, this is what Freud calls you know, this kind of ultra-morality that Mishima would find in, embodied in the emperor, the ultimate further father figure that one can submit to absolutely. And one, you know, in, in creating this in Freud's depiction, the accent falls on heightened sadism of the superego to which the ego submits. You know, this is Pascal's notion that there is uh, the worst sort of evil is that which is carried out in the name of God. One doesn't, you know, it's that no one can do evil so joyfully as the one who does it. That's uh, the be beckoning of the voice of God. And so the emperor was only the last figure for Mishima in the series of imagos that had served as his superego. And there, there, the contradiction in Mishima, you know, he had played the kind of playboy personality and a kind of left, but then he, left winger, but then he had shifted to a, a kind of ultra-nationalist. Uh, and his friends had not detected this bent in his political nature. But, of course, I think it's purely the fruition of his moral masochism. 
He says somewhere within me, I was beginning to plan a union of art and life, of style and the ethos of action. And he's going to bring it all together in one glorious act. His suicide, which in fact was uh, you know, the supreme spectacle of post-war Japan. Maybe the defining death of the 20th century and that Mishima's futil, futile death, you know, his death. and It was almost comical as he played it out. But it was a tragic uh, death, of course, and so was the death of so many who had laid down their lives for the living God, Hirohito, who turned out to just be a, a man. And so through the emperor and the shield society, uh, that Mishima had founded, the emperor, he thinks, is going to find his rightful place, that there's going to be a discovery of the mystic union once again is, is going to be made possible of the group dedicated to a tragic purpose. And so Mishima is driving us to an understanding of the functioning of religion at the behest of a twisted understanding of the law that I think is there in the Apostle Paul. I'm going to stop there with part three. Uh, the The picture then I'm using with Mishima is just, I think, an outworking, a particular cultural outworking of Romans chapter 7. That it may be that in different societies this could express itself differently, but to my mind it's amazing the degree to which Mishima's picture is articulation accords with a western understanding of the death drive and the death drive of course I think is simply the body of death the law of sin and death taken up into the soul